0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's 9 a.m. on the West Coast on April the 22nd, 2020. And the economics of this pandemic are in some ways, it seems like, watching Black Mirror or even Monty Python. They're surreal. They're bizarre. Yesterday... You could, buy, you could buy futures of oil, or you're not, you couldn't buy futures of oil. People selling futures of oil would pay you to take this oil that nobody else wanted. Uh, we've got 22 million people in America unemployed, and yet the stock market up until yesterday seemed to be uh, on the rise. In fact, I think it's risen more over the last couple of weeks than any other time since the 1970s it's very hard to make sense of what's happened, particularly the $4 trillion bailout that the U.S. government now is throwing at the crisis. One uh, young economic historian who is making sense of all this is Trevor Jackson. He teaches economic history at George uh, Washington University in, in, uh, in, uh, in D.C., and uh, he's the author of an extremely interesting piece in Dissent Magazine last week, entitled "The Sovereign Fed." Uh, Trevor, is uh, I- I- is economics just the uh, a more ac- a, a more academic uh, version of, of of a Monty Python uh, episode?
1: Mm. Well, I suppose it depends on the episode, um, and if I run through the classics. Um Monty Python is more unpredictable maybe than economics usually is. But I wouldn't say that it's something that either is purely ideologically inflected or necessarily incomprehensible to outsiders. Um, but I think you're probably speaking of the economics of the moment rather than economics as a discipline. So
0: what's go- so so as I said at the beginning, seems pretty bizarre what's going on. On the one hand... Um, Everyone's losing their job. The, the, the economy, and, and everyone would agree with this, is in complete meltdown. And yet two other things are happening simultaneously. Firstly, the stock market seems to be doing quite well. So some people are making huge amounts of money. And secondly, the government has suddenly discovered four or five or six trillion dollars uh, in, in bailout money, in support money, which we were told for generations never existed. So, so what's going on?
1: Well, um, I mean, both of those are related to the same thing, which is to say that uh, the financial economy, which is um, one in which banks and parabank institutions borrow from each other, lend to each other, buy assets, uh, the financial economy has been saved. The Federal Reserve has set up nine different credit facilities. They have committed truly astonishing amount of money to supporting essentially every credit market on earth, not just in the United States, but writ large. And they've extended access to dollars to central banks around the world. Um, They've done things that have never been done before that nobody entirely knew that they could do. And what all of that has done is ensure that banks and things that are like banks continue to have access to dollars, which they can lend They feel they will continue to have access to dollars, so they feel safe enough to lend. And with that lending comes the ability to buy assets. And one thing that the Federal Reserve has been doing is supporting asset prices. So when they're doing what they call quantitative easing, they're buying assets or they're buying government debt. They're buying corporate debt now. And so what that means is by buying those things, just basic supply and demand, they are driving up the price of those. And so if you own the remaining ones, the price of them are going up. Um, And so what that means is that for owners of capital and owners of assets, uh, and particularly if you're living from income from those assets, you're probably doing fine. Um, But if you're living from wages, less so. The Federal Reserve is not paying wages. The wage economy, what economists call the real economy, has it isn't that it hasn't gotten bailed out because there are elements of the CARES Act that are directed to that, but it is not a direct beneficiary of financial economy bailouts, which is what the Federal Reserve has been doing.
0: So your piece in dissent has this wonderful subtitle. It's called The Sovereign Fed, and it says, in terms of crisis governance, the United States is not a country with a central bank. It's a central bank with a country. Uh, Sounds as if that could have been written by Marx. in very simple terms for our audience, Trevor, who aren't all academic, uh, economic historians, uh, what is the Fed?
1: <laughs> um, well, before I tell you that, I should tell you that the the line there is a paraphrase of a quote that's usually attributed to the Comte de Mirabeau, who was a French nobleman. And he said about Prussia, that it wasn't a country with an army, but an army with a country. Um, right. And that's always he struck with me. <laughs> You may never have said it. You know, most historical quotes are made up. Yeah. Well, um, yours is even better. I mean. um, So what is the Federal Reserve? Uh, the Federal Reserve is the very peculiar hybrid uh, central bank that the United States has. So central banks are kind of an amazing institution. Um, you know, not every country in the world collects taxes. Kuwait doesn't. Not every country in the world has an army. Uh, Costa Rica doesn't. But every country in the world has a central bank. And almost all central banks behave in more or less the same way. And their lineage, which I'm happy to talk about at excruciating length, uh, their lineage goes back to the 18th century. Um, but the Federal Reserve is a weird variant on that.
0: So it's the economic backstop for the country. The Federal it's, Re- it's, is it, would it be fair to say that it's doing it today, throwing all this money at a crisis, Acting as the backstop, the the in contrast to President Trump, the the buck certainly stops with the Fed. Um, is isn't it doing exactly what it's supposed to do? It is,
1: yes. So the Fed's job, uh, in fact legally, it has a dual mandate, which is to deliver price stability, meaning not inflation, not deflation. Uh, usually, that means a rule of aiming for about two to three percent steady inflation year after year. Um, And it it has a legal mandate since the Humphrey Hawkins Act of 1978 to deliver full employment. And so its job is to manage the price level and the money supply in order to achieve that mandate. Um, And every central bank usually has a mandate to deliver price stability. The, The employment aspect is relatively unusual. And they do that through managing the supply and the cost of money. Uh, so they are a monetary authority rather than a. So fiscal they're the ones who authority. decide
0: how many dollars get printed, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah, and they
0: can print as many as they want. Yes, yes. That's not and the decision, and and the, but the decision to throw this four or five or six trillion dollars, however much it turns out to be, at the crisis, um, that can be done without the approval of of Congress, without without. Without the president.
1: So an interesting thing about central banks in general and the Federal Reserve in particular is that they are specifically intended to be insulated from politics. They are politically independent, which means they are not directly elected. They're not directly accountable to voters. Now, the Fed chair uh, is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, but they don't get replaced in new presidential terms. They are supposed to not be responsive to democracy. And the reason for that is most central bankers and economists who study central bankers, and there's a lot of overlap, of course, between the two, think that if a central bank is responsive to voters, then politicians will pressure central bankers to make bad decisions in the short term in order to win elections. And, and so, the
0: head of the uh, the Fed at the moment is is Powell, Jerome Powell who got a lot of grief from from Trump. He hasn't been getting grief in the last few weeks surprise surprise but but he did last year and he did even earlier in the year. Yes.
1: Yes. And so that's an exactly a case in which defenders of central bank independence would say look it's great that this very Jerome Powell is a very uh uh Unexciting, sort of unglamorous example of a Federal Reserve chair. He is uh, very—I'm struggling not to say middle of the road because he's done astonishing things, but he's not. That's exactly what we want. We
0: don't want. We don't want a Donald Trump
1: as the head of the the Federal Reserve. So, almost any defender of central bank independence would say it's great that Donald Trump can't control the central bank, and we have seen many examples in the last couple of years of right-wing autocrats threatening central bank independence um, and trying to use the powers of their central banks to achieve their domestic political goals. Um, And there's good reason to think that 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 could be a very bad thing, but there's also good reason to think that being insulated from democratic accountability, particularly given how astonishingly powerful central banks are, also represents a threat in a different direction. Um, And that's the core of your argument, we're
0: essentially being ruled by the Fed, but we don't elect the Fed,
1: right? Right. And in part, we're being ruled by the Fed because Congress is so dysfunctional that Congress isn't able or willing to exercise very much uh, authority and oversight over the Fed. Um, You know, the Fed is a delegated institution. Congress can be its boss, but Congress doesn't and hasn't for quite some time, um, exercised very much uh, supervision over the Fed. And the Fed is, uh, has an enormous amount of scope to interpret how its mandates are achieved, how its rules are constructed, what exceptions to those rules exist, how the rules can be changed. If you look right now at any of the uh, press releases from the Federal Reserve on their website, what you'll find is a list of saying the Fed has changed this rule. The Fed has adjusted the timing for this rule. The Fed has redefined a rule. They have a lot of capacity to do that. Well,
0: they're the judge and the jury. They can do anything they like.
1: Well, it, you know, it's possible that and and anybody who works for the Fed would say they have to follow a set of rules. And if they don't, they can be sued, and Congress can call them to task. But that requires several other mechanisms of American democracy to be functioning. And they hadn't been functioning particularly well before 2020 and i think now especially that dysfunction is such that the fed can act so swiftly and so with so much concentration and precision that their discretion is almost unbounded even though that isn't institutionally or legally the way that it's supposed to be functioning
0: so here's the the four or the 5 trillion dollar question trevor they've found this money which i s- means they're essentially printing it. Um, two, well, two questions on that. Where'd they get it from? And secondly, how can we, my understanding as a, as a non-economic historian, is that if you suddenly decide to print money, which is what the Fed is doing, that creates massive inflation because suddenly the value of money gets lower and lower as you put more and more into the system.
1: Well, uh, the answer to where they're getting it from is that they are the monetary authority they can... Print as much as they like and because the united states controls its own currency borrows in its own currency um, it has wide latitude to create uh well to create money to expand the monetary stock and this isn't you know we're saying printing money we shouldn't imagine that they are literally printing money uh, which is something that the bureau of engraving and printing does um, instead this is all electronic accounts right and they can expand their balance sheet more or less, I mean, I don't. I, I hesitate to say infinity, but they have announced infinite quantitative easing. So maybe infinity really is a, a meaningful concept here. Um,
0: right. You you have a term uh, QE infinity right. in in your piece right. as they well, did. which I think is quite clever. They well, did,
1: scary as well. They did four rounds of QE after the two thousand eight crisis, um, and all of them combined are dwarfed by what they're doing now. So, will that produce inflation? Um, The answer appears to be no. Now, under normal circumstances, you're probably right that producing more money will produce more inflation. Uh, I mean, that's just a basic kind of quantity theory of money that most economists would agree with. But the thing about money is that people spend it, right? And I think we can agree. Um, And I think that at the moment, that's exactly what people are not doing whether because they have lost jobs, they fear losing their jobs, they fear a return of the pandemic. Um, you know, I think it's safe to say that most people are worried about the future and so are likely to save rather than spend. And at, a, at an extreme level, which I think clearly we are in, um, that suggests that the Federal Reserve can print a lot of money and it will not have an inflationary effect because people prefer to hold it rather than to put it in circulation, which would cause an increase in prices. And that situation is what is normally called a liquidity trap, um, which is an idea that comes from John Maynard Keynes during the Great Depression, when he thought in that moment, look, normal rules don't apply. We're in a spectacular crisis. That means we can do unconventional things. And we shouldn't be worried about inflation because people are going to hold this money or, or at least are going to spend a smaller proportion of it than would normally be the case. And that had even been true since the 2008 crisis. I mean, we uh, before 2020, and uh, you can see this very much in the work of the historian Adam Tooze, we would have thought that doing four and a half trillion dollars of quantitative easing, which is what the Federal Reserve did after the 2008 crisis, we would have thought that that would cause inflation. But of course it didn't. If anything, it wasn't enough. And the Fed consistently came in under their target so that suggests that you know, we've had a decade in which um, people have been worried about the future and have been either not spending or doing more saving than they would otherwise. Are we do. then
0: flirting with the, the Japanese virus, the deflationary virus, which has racked the, the Japanese economy now for a couple of generations? I
1: think that is much more likely. Um, I think that Japan in the 1990s has in some ways been an image of the U.S. and Western Europe in the 2000s, and we may now be flirting with, as you say, uh, maybe an even more extreme example of that. And of course, you know, we all, when we think about economic history, uh, a classic example of a disaster that many people reach for is the hyperinflation of 1923 in Germany. But we forget that that was not the Great Depression. The Great Depression was a deflationary event. the The deflation of 1930 to 33 was the depth of the depression that deflation it tends to produce a kind of feedback loop where prices fall which means you are not going to buy whatever thing you might buy because you know the prices are going to fall further. when you don't buy it businesses have no choice but to lower prices which means you again expect them to fall further so you still don't buy and so no one buys anything and prices go down and down and down and you get stuck in a kind of deflationary spiral um, and that is exactly the context in which somebody like Keynes or indeed the quantitative easing uh, under Bernanke and Yellen after 2008 have said, well, look, the private market will not alone solve that. Central banks need to step in and do reflationary monetary stimulus. Um, And that's exactly what Powell's doing now, just on a scale completely unheard of.
0: Trevor, is it possible that one of the ironic, unintended consequences of of the pandemic will be the sort of the, the building of uh, the, 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 the establishment of the foundations of progressive politics for the next couple of generations, that suddenly the state's stronger. Suddenly it's been proved that the Fed can invest huge amounts of money in society. So these trillions of dollars, which part, I mean, some of them are going obviously to corporates, uh, but some of it's going to unemployed people. Some of it's going to small government. Some of it, perhaps will eventually go to investment in infrastructure. Is this changing the rules of progressive politics in terms of charting an economic future?
1: Um, I think that at a cultural level, it's doing a tremendous amount of work and is demonstrating that Margaret Thatcher was wrong when she said that there is no such thing as society, that in fact, the message of the pandemic is, well, we all live in a society and we are only as healthy as our least healthy member. Uh, we are only as employed as our most essential workers, and that economic misfortune is not the result of personal responsibility, but rather, as the founders of the National Health Service said, the result of unintended, unforeseen consequences that come out of the complexity of social life. And so that definitely is moving, I think, um, more and more people to realize that we need social provision of public goods and social security with small s's in various ways. But uh, I end the piece on a very, what I thought was a pessimistic note, um, which is that action from the Federal Reserve and other central banks is showing just a tremendous amount of power that is available and can be used to reshape the economic and financial system. But it's happening in a political moment when the left has been destroyed. as as an organized political force in many different countries. I mean, um, Bernie Sanders is not going to be the Democratic nominee. Jeremy Corbyn has lost control of the Labour Party. Um, You know, we have, from 2016, we have now moved to a world governed by Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Jair Bolsonaro, Narendra Modi. Um, I mean, this has been a, a... The fallout of the politics of 2008 has ended up perversely and paradoxically in a global wave of uh, xenophobia and right-wing politics. And I'm not yet at all willing, and I am a historian, and so nobody should listen to historians about the future, but I'm unwilling to speculate- We should, I
0: think historians are always the best future essentially. uh,
1: Who knows what the politics of 2020 will look like. I suspect they will take a long time to shake out. And I think no one in 2009 would have thought that the politics of inequality of post 2008 would have ended up in such a right-wing direction um right but for now very very,
0: br- very briefly trevor um so far at least uh, people aren't blaming the billionaires for the crisis uh so the arguments of gabriel zuckman who's been on this show and thomas piketty and And the other people arguing for for, for a fundamental restructuring of taxation doesn't seem to have been benefited. The the, the one uh, source of blame, it seems, is China. Um, In terms of the international economic system, I know this is a big question and I want a simple answer. Is America going to come out of this crisis stronger or weaker? Because it does seem as if, if from your piece and from my understanding of the crisis, that the Fed is not only backing up the American economy but the global economy, and the dollar is coming out of this crisis increasingly um, as the uh, as the, uh, the the currency of of of, of, of trust, of, of the, the backstop of the world economy, uh, which I assume will benefit the United States over China in this new global political and economic conflict. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um and that's one of the paradoxes of the moment is that the uh, elected and fiscal and political authorities are squandering as much goodwill and um whatever remaining legitimacy American global hegemony might have had at the exact same time that the Federal Reserve is if anything gaining in its centrality to the global monetary mm. system such that ironic. Yeah, you know, it is. Well, and that's why I, w- I wanted to make the claim that there is a space of crisis governance that the Fed has sovereignty over at a global level, um, that it is essentially the sole provider of safety and liquidity to the global economy. And that means that it has both a tremendous amount of power and that it can exercise governance and collective action that the, US, the elected US government is either unwilling or unable to provide. And that might mean when it comes time for instance, to address climate change, that the Federal Reserve is capable of large scale intervention, large scale um, directed collective action that is clearly lacking in elected governments, say. Um, and that we, what I wanted to do with the piece was argue that there should be, if we we're going to be thinking unconventionally and creatively about what central banks and monetary policy should do, then we should really do that. And we should think, on a very large scale indeed, about the set of collective action problems that are facing us, have been facing us, and continue to face us in the future.
0: So perhaps the quote should be, in terms of crisis government, the world is not a series of countries with central banks. It is a central bank with many B- countries. the world. <laughs> uh, right. Maybe,
1: maybe. Um, you know, any sort of global response to, I mean, even to this crisis, it, it matters what the European Central Bank does. It matters what the Bank of England does. It matters what the Bank of Japan does. Um, but that's a relatively small set of players that very much follow the Fed's lead. Um, right. And
0: It's just- ironic that as globalization, if, if anything's going to come out of this tarnished as a concept, it's globalization. And yet, as you're suggesting, uh, the reality of globalization, at least in economic terms, is that we're increasingly being run by a single unaccountable unelected institution finally uh finally trevor um this is hard stuff not everyone will understand everything about it uh give me a a suggestion of a book which provides an introduction maybe a a sophisticated introduction to the contemporary economic system and particularly uh the system uh that that, that came out of the, the crash of 2008
1: yeah in fact if you don't mind i might give you two um the first is you're allowed to great <laughs> uh the first is adam twos and his book crashed uh, which is gigantic but we're all in lockdown and so uh we have yeah. the time
0: intimidatingly large but well worth it and i think adam twos is going to come on the show actually, great. He in a
1: is, couple of weeks. he has been doing fantastic work he's very much Active in the public sphere. It's a global approach to the post 2008 decade. It's also, you know, it's written by a very, very good academic, but also is out from a popular press. So it's relatively cheap um, as opposed to many academic books. Uh, the second is a book called Capitalizing on Crisis by Greta Krippner. That's Krippner with a K, who is a professor at the University of Michigan. And this is almost the exact opposite, which is to say it's very short, it's about 150 pages and I think is a very lucid, clear, and compelling account of how the financial system has developed really since the 1970s, how it's worked, um, who governs it, where its vulnerabilities lie. And so I think that you say an introduction, I would say that Krippner's Capitalizing on Crisis is a great introduction. And then Toose's book is the best account of the last decade of the international economic system.
0: You've been listening to Keenon, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.